Welcome back to Psychic Card. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And once again, I want to thank all of you for listening. I appreciate your support. And like I said, I never thought that I would be able to make this many episodes of this show. I just did not think there would be this much interest in it, especially from listeners in other countries. So thank you so much. Uh, If you want to share your support, please give us five stars on whatever uh, platform you listen to us on. That helps us get on those recommended lists and that helps us get more listens um, in the future. Also, you can show your support by dropping us a few dollars um, on our Patreon page, which is patreon.podbean.com forward slash psychyourcrime. Or if you want to give us a one-time donation, you can use Venmo at psych-your-crime. Once again, it's Christmas time. Always use a secret Santa. Your support would be appreciated either way. We, I really love all you guys. Um, love and support if you want to get a hold of me um on both twitter and instagram it's at geek flossy i've had a couple of you reach out to me and i really really appreciate hearing from you now this week we are going to look into the case of a man who went on week-long murder spree during christmas of 1987 at the core of this case was incest now according to psychologists there are various types of incest They include sexual relations between brother and sister and between father and daughter. They are thought to occur the most frequently, even much more so than mother and son incest, which is believed to be incredibly rare. The phenomenon of what is considered covert incest has been noted between mother and son, however, in which the mother acts towards her son in a sexual manner without actually seducing him. Usually, other members of the family are aware of the incestuous relationship and it will govern the psychodynamics of the entire family structure. According to contemporary reports by incest survivors, most child sexual abuse is committed by male relatives. Fathers who abuse their daughters tend to have a history of psychological problems and emotional deprivation. They'll often implement an incestuous relationship with more than one daughter. In many cases, the mother is aware of the abuse and either feels powerless to stop it or colludes with the father for reasons of their own, such as survival, they think that they're not going to be able to make it by themselves if they leave, or they don't think they're going to find anyone, quote unquote, as good as them. So they stay and they collude. Like I said, they feel it's a form of survival. Contrary to popular assumptions and stereotypes, incest occurs at all levels of society. It's likely to happen in middle and upper class families as poor families and takes place in families that appear outwardly happy, respectable, and well-adjusted. Adults who have been incest victims in childhood are prone to depression, sexual dysfunction, and abusive behavior. Incest involving an adult victim is extremely rare. Although there has been increasing public awareness of this problem in recent years, It is believed that most cases of incest remain unreported due to the stigma involved and the powerlessness of dependent children ensnared in incestuous relationships. Over the years, many theories have been advanced regarding the origin, nature, structure, function, and interpretation of the incestual taboo but none has been generally accepted as completely definitive. So basically what they're saying is, is incest just a social construct or 
And where did that construct come from? One practice, one practical function of the taboo is that the prohibition of incest decreases the incidence of birth defects and recessive genetic disorders. So they're talking about things like royal families used to keep it within the lineage in order to ensure their bloodline was poor, was pure, excuse me, and that then led to birth defects, that led to uh, disorders. You would hear things like a lot of, uh, there'd be, you know, they'd, they'd have um, disorders where they would, they would be misshapen, they'd have things like scoliosis and things like that. I'm not saying that that's necessarily comes from incest, but you would hear a lot of things about they'd be very weak and very sickly. And there's always been speculation that the reason that a lot of royals were sickly and maybe didn't live quite as long and, and had a lot of ailments and, and had a lot of issues and medical conditions is because for all intents and purposes, they were incredibly inbred that many royals back in the day were pretty much all related to each other and married within in related family lines. So the idea of it being taboo decreases the incidence of you um, being those sickly, weak and pale kids that have a birth defects or uh, because uh, genes become dominant that were recessive that have um, genetic anomalies and things. Ronald Jean Simmons Sr. was born July 15, 1940, in Chicago, Illinois, to Loretta and William Simmons. On January 31, 1943, William Simmons died of a stroke. Within a year, Simmons' mother married again, this time to William D. Griffin, a civil engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The Corps moved Griffin to Little Rock, Arkansas in 1946 the first of several transfers that would take the family across central Arkansas over the next decade. On September 15, 1957, Simmons dropped out of school and joined the U.S. Navy. His first station was a naval station Bremerton in Washington, where he met Bersa Bay, Rebecca, Becky, Ulabari, who he married in New Mexico on July 9, 1960. Over the next 18 years, the couple had seven children. In 1963, Simmons left the Navy and approximately two years later, he joined the U.S. Air Force. During his 20-year military career, Simmons was awarded a Bronze Star, the Republic of Vietnam Gallantry Cross for his service as an airman, and the Air Force Ribbon for Excellent Marksmanship. Simmons retired on November 30, 1979 at the rank of Master Sergeant. On April 3, 1981, Simmons began being investigated by the Cloudcraft New Mexico Department of Human Services for allegations he had fathered a child with his then 17-year-old daughter, Sheila. Sheila's teachers in the town of Cloudcraft suspected the truth about the pregnancy and they were the ones who alerted authorities. Fearing he would be arrested, Simmons fled first to Ward, Arkansas in late 1981 and then to Dover, Arkansas in the summer of 1983. The family took up residence on a 13-acre tract of land that would become known as Markingbird Hill. The residence was constructed of two older model mobile homes joined to form one large home and was surrounded by makeshift privacy fence as high as 10 feet tall in some places. 
The home did not have a telephone or indoor plumbing. The unhappy bunch landed, the unhappy bunch stayed there in Arkansas. Simmons purchased that 13 acre tract of land so that he could keep his family as isolated as possible from the outside world. Not only did they not have a phone, but they also had no air conditioning or heat and no working toilets. Controlling and cruel, Simmons forced his children to perform backbreaking manual labor around the house. One of the last tasks he set for his children was to dig a four foot deep ditch. Simmons told his children that it was for an outhouse, but the truth was he was making them dig their own graves. By 1987, the three eldest Simmons children had broken free and carved out lives for themselves. Little Jean, Billy, and in what seemed an act of supreme betrayal, Sheila. Now an attractive young woman who understood what harm her father had done, Sheila left and got married. Her husband was a good man and he knew the truth about Sheila's daughter, but agreed to adopt the child anyway. Simmons' wife had despised him for many years and even before he had started an incestuous relationship with their daughter. She had in the beginning called him Fatso and prayed almost every day obsessively because as she told her sister, quote, I don't want to meet him in hell, end quote. Still, she somehow could never quite take the final step out the door. Then, just before Christmas, it seemed she had had enough. She stated, I don't want to live the rest of my life with your father. I'm a prisoner here and so are the children. She wrote in a letter to her son, Billy. Every time I think of freedom, I want out as soon as possible. The letter was written just a few days before the family was supposed to get together over the holidays. Whether it was her intention to leave or the fact that he had been rejected by two pretty young women, one his daughter and the other a secretary he knew in passing that sparked the massacre, it will never be known for sure. Simmons refused to offer an explanation or a defense. Simmons worked a string of low paying jobs in nearby town of Russellville, Arkansas. He quit a position as an accounts receivable clerk at Woodline Motor Freight after numerous reports of inappropriate sexual advances. He went to work at Sinclair Mini Mart for approximately a year and a half before quitting on December 18, 1987. Shortly before Christmas, 1987, Simmons decided to kill all the members of his family. On the morning of December 22nd, he first killed his wife, Rebecca, and eldest son, Jean, by shooting them with a 22 caliber pistol, then killed his three-year-old granddaughter slash daughter, Barbara, by strangulation. Simmons dumped the bodies in a cesspit he had forced his children to dig. He then waited for his other children to return to the house, and after they arrived, he told them he had presents but that he wanted to give them one by one. He first killed his 17-year-old daughter, Loretta. He strangled her and held her under the water in a rain barrel. The three children, Eddie, Marion, and Becky, 
but were all then strangled individually as well. Around midday on December 26th, the remaining members of the family arrived for their Christmas visit. The first to be killed was Simmons' son, Billy, and his wife, Renata, who were both shot dead. He then strangled and drowned their 20-month-year-old son, Trey. Oh, that's awful. Simmons shot and killed his oldest daughter, Sheila, the one that he had abused, and her husband, Dennis McNulty. Simmons then strangled his child with Sheila, seven-year-old Sylvia, and finally, his 21-month-old grandson, Michael. Simmons laid the bodies of his whole family in neat rows in the lounge. All the corpses were covered with coats except Sheila, who was covered by a tablecloth. The bodies of the two grandsons were wrapped in plastic sheeting and left in abandoned cars at the end of the lane. After the murders, Simmons went for a drink at a bar, then returned to the house, oblivious to the fact that it was filled with corpses, and spent the rest of the evening and the following day drinking beer and watching TV. Like, that's so fucking gross. I'm just gonna hang out in a house filled with my dead family and watch Christmas movies and drink beer. On the morning of December 28th, Simmons drove into Russellville, walked into law office, and killed the receptionist, a young woman named Kathy Kendrick. Simmons had previously been infatuated with her, but she had rejected him. He next went to an oil company office where he shot a man named J.D. Chafin and wounded the, or the owner, Rusty Taylor, and then drove to a convenience store that he used to work at, shooting and wounding two more people. Afterwards, he went to the office of Woodline Motor Freight Company where he shot and wounded a woman. Simmons then simply sat in the office and talked to one of the secretaries while he waited for the police. When they arrived, Simmons handed over his gun and surrendered without any resistance. Now, this is a list of the victims. So on December 22nd, he shot his son, Ronald Jean Jr., who's 29. Her, his wife, Rebecca, who's 46, his granddaughter slash daughter, Barbara, who is three, his daughter, Loretta, who is 17, he strangled. Um, his son, Eddie, who was 14, he strangled. His daughter, Marianne, who's 11, he strangled. His daughter, Becky, who is eight, he strangled. Then on the 26th, he shot his son, William, who was 23. He shot his daughter-in-law, Renata, 22. He shot, he drowned, excuse me, his grandson, Trey, who was one. He shot his daughter, Sheila. He shot his son-in-law, who's Dennis, who's 23. He strangled his daughter slash granddaughter, who was six. He strangled his 20-month-old grandson, Michael. Then... Kathy Kendrick, who was the receptionist who rejected him, she's 24, he shot her. And then J.D. Chafin, who was just a minor acquaintance, he shot him. He was charged with 16 counts of murder, found guilty, because remember, he put up no defense. He gave no explanation and he put up no defense. He was sentenced to death. He refused to appeal his death sentence and stated, 
to those who oppose the death penalty, in my particular case, any sort of death would be cruel. Anything short of death, excuse me, would be cruel and unusual punishment. So basically he wanted to die. That's why he gave no defense. That's why he didn't appeal. He didn't choose to appeal his sentence. He wanted to die. He thought it would be cruel to allow him to stay and live. John Bynum successfully prosecuted the case. Simmons was first tried for the Russellville crimes and a jury convicted him of capital murder and sentenced him to death. He made an additional statement under oath supporting his sentence. I, Ronald Jean Simmons Sr., want it to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anybody be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that this sentence be carried out expeditiously. So he wanted to die as soon as possible. The trial court conducted a hearing concerning Simmons' confidence to waive further proceedings and concluded that his decision was knowing and intelligent. Simmons became the subject of the United States Supreme Court case, Whitmore v. Arkansas, when another death row inmate, Jonas Whitmore, attempted unsuccessfully to force an appeal of Simmons' case. So he wasn't the only one. Against his wishes, the Catholic Church supported this and tried, uh, supported the trying to force the appeal. So there were several people that did not want him to get the death penalty, even though he wanted the death penalty. So that's kind of the conundrum there is, you know, he was accepting of his sentence and he was accepting of his, of his fate. So you may not agree with the death penalty and that's all well and good, but if the prisoner is accepting of his fate and is willing to be accountable and take the death penalty, which is the consequences of his actions, is it necessarily your place to step in and trying to appeal his sentence on his behalf when he doesn't want to appeal it? Um, so that is really what the case was about. I think the crux of the case was that they felt he was suicidal and that someone should appeal the case on his behalf because he was suicidal so he wasn't thinking properly. On May 31st, Arkansas governor who later became president, Bill Clinton, signed Simmons' execution warrant. And on June 25th, 1990, that is quick. That's like, um, not even a month. Like, that's quick. He died by method he had chosen, lethal injection. None of his relatives would claim the body and he was buried in a potter's field. So for those of you who are not in the United States, in the United States, they have special burial grounds for people who are poor or indigent. So you may have seen it on American TV shows, crime shows, when a body goes unclaimed, uh, they may, you may see them like in the morgue, talk about a Jane Doe and nobody claims her and they can't identify her and she gets sent to Pottersfield. Pottersfield is not the name of the cemetery. It's just what they call the cemeteries that they bury indigent people in who can't afford a burial or um, unknown, unnamed people who never get claimed. That's where they send them to these cemeteries and that's basically for indigent people who have no one to pay for their burials. So when that's the case, they usually get buried in plain pine boxes, not caskets, but plain pine boxes, no linings, anything like that. It's just a box in a field and they don't even really get a headstone. Um, it, it really depends on what state you live in. 
Some places you get a tiny plaque and it'll say, if they know who you are, it'll say your name and the dates of whatever, like when you were born and when you died. They don't know who you are. They'll say Jane Doe or John Doe and this the date that you died. Like, that's it. So um, that's what a potter's field is. It's not the name of the cemetery. It's the random name for the cemeteries that they bury the people who don't have people who can afford burial or they have no one to claim their body. Um, so... That is the case of Gene Simmons. Next week, we are gonna look at a Christmas Eve massacre that involved a Santa with a flamethrower. In the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.